This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hey there, everyone. This is Dan with Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Welcome back for another great evening with a very dear friend of mine. You know, when I started out impersonating George Michael way back in the late 80s, I graced a nice place called La Caja Fall, an amazing cabaret in Beverly Hills, and uh, I met extraordinary talents. And one of those talents is with me this evening. He has been, uh, has toured and performed all over the world. Uh, he's a legend and a very respected veteran of this art form. He's here with me this evening, so please welcome Mr. Logan Walker. Hi, Logan. Hi, how are you? Flattered. <laughs> <laughs> Logan has worked for me for a long time. I've known him for a long time, but I never had a chance really to get his story. We're going to start off basically just briefly telling me about where you grew up and, uh, and your upbringing. I grew up in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale and Miami to be exact. I was born in Michigan, but my parents moved me to Fort Lauderdale when I was very young. So that was pretty much the place where I spent my childhood and my forming years, so to speak, and uh, was a very good place to grow up. Very well-rounded with a lot of different influences. And uh, Did you have a full family, like a standard like um, all-American dream family, or was it a single parent, brothers, sisters? Single parent. I'm adopted, and I found out when I was about 10 that I was adopted. And my adopted mother, who had divorced from her husband when I was very small, um, raised me on her own. And she explained to me that I was adopted. I was born to a woman who was little more than a child herself and was in a situation that she could not keep the baby because she was preparing to marry someone else who did not want the responsibility of an additional child. So my mother, after two days, gave me away literally to a friend of hers to give me to a friend of hers who could not have any more children. So I was sort of... Uh, <laughs> passed around, if you will, a couple of days after I was born until I got the person who was going to keep me. And did you have any adopted brothers and sisters? or were you... None. I had just my biological brother and my biological sister, whom I met, met both of them. Well, we have that in common because I was adopted as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was adopted as well. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll have to talk about that on another Another, <laughs> another <episode>. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, growing up, did you have aspirations? Like, when, you, when do you think you had the first memory of aspiring to be some sort of entertainment field or some sort something to do with entertainment? Do you, do you have this dream that you'd want to be a performer or you wanted to be part of entertainment? Do you remember your first memory of that? I remember... The first film I ever saw, I was t- very small, was Mary Poppins, and I liked it. The second film I saw, and I was blown away by it, was Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. And I got the album, and I played that damn album until I thought it would break. And I remember using a hairbrush in my bedroom as a microphone. So I think that was like the beginnings of it, with that, that little inkling of it. You wanted to be one of the stars from the movie? Or oh, I, I wanted to be Barbara Streisand. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I 
So was that unusual for you at the time? Like, or that was that normal? Like you didn't think any different of it? Like you saw her and you, you wanted to emulate what she was representing? I didn't really think that it was all that different. I, I certainly wouldn't have done that in the living room in front of my parents, but uh, I did it uh, in the bedroom and I got quite good at uh, Oh My Man and People and all of that kind of thing. So it was, I, I traced it all back to Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl. And, and what year would you think that was? 1840. Wow. Before <laughs> television, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. Pre-teen, I assume, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, Late 60s, early 70s, I would say. Can you tell me, can you remember, what's your first memory of actually seeing a, a female impersonator or a drag performer? Was it on television? Was it in person? Was it a friend, uncle? <laughs> there was a female impersonator in Fort Lauderdale was famous down there at the time by the name of Tiny Tina. And Tiny Tina was about 800 pounds. And that's your first person you ever saw? Or did you see yeah, some, oh, wow. that was the first person I and ever saw. And how old were you then? 16, maybe? 15, 16? 17, no, 16, I'd say. I, I don't remember how I got in touch with him, but we ended up knowing each other. And he invited me to come into a local bar to see him perform, and I was underage. And they snuck me in, and I stood at the corner of the bar and watched him on stage. And he was very good and very talented. It left a very... It just seemed like something that I thought I would be good at doing. Um, and you had all that experience from the movie, Yeah, Funny I had, Girl. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I was in school, and I took um, theater in school, and I was good at it, and I seemed like I had a good flair at it. And so it was like really later a combination of what I had learned in school and seeing him that got me to do it. And when was... Can you remember the first time that... So did that shortly lead that point forward? Did, was there a short time before you got into drag? Or were you, did you do drag at all in high school? I didn't do drag at all in high school. And it was later on, probably I was like 20-something. I can't tell you the year because it was so long ago. I got... I started doing... I had the opportunity to do it for Tina, Tiny Tina again. Mm-hmm. But this time I was like almost 17. And I said, let's do it. So I remember sitting backstage in this little dressing room with packed with drag queens. And they were sniffing and they were blow- smoking joints and they were doing cocaine and all this. And here I was, this shy kid in the corner going, holy shit, look at all this. He offered me a job. And that was beginning in the first song I ever did. Oh, I've got to regress for a second. My hairdresser at the time was a guy in Miami by the name of Freddie. And Freddie said, you know, I think we could make you look like somebody. I think we could make you, you know, appear as somebody. And I was like, well, cool, let's do it, let's do it. So he opened his salon at night and took me there and put me in the chair, but turned the chair away from the mirror so I could not see what was happening. And he painted me as Judy Garland. The hair and all of it, I was... And then when he was all done, he wheeled the chair around so I could see in the mirror. Friggin' looked like Judy Garland. And that was what I think was the beginning. If we go back a little bit more, when did you... Was that the first time you knew who Judy Garland was? or I've been a fan of Judy Garland since I was a little kid. When did that happen? So... Before Streisand or during Streisand? After or? Streisand. Okay. Yeah, like around 19, 1976, I'm going to say it started. So you became a fan of that. So more so than Streisand. So Garland became oh, yeah. your, your idol, if you will. Yeah. But you, you know, I'll tell you something funny that you mentioned that. Kenny Kerr, the late Kenny Kerr, who is no longer with us, was in a remarkable Barbara Streisand. And him and I had a, was a great, great guy. Him and I had a conversation one time. And he, I said, do you know if I could pick 
anybody in the world to do and really look like them. If I could pick anybody, hands down, it would be Barbara Streisand. And he said, you know, if I could pick anybody in the world to do, hands down, it would be Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go back to that moment when you first met Kenny then, uh, but uh, in a minute. So let's, your hairdresser paints you up as Judy Garland. At this time, you're in your early 20s? Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that point in your early 20s, had you seen anyone on TV at that point? It's a question I've asked all the performers. Had you seen anybody in the media? Oh, yeah. I saw Jim Bailey on Carol Burnett, I think it was, and he was doing Streisand. And I was blown away because it just, here was somebody who was a man impersonating a woman who had it down so good. The hair, the costuming, the, the, the voice... All of it was so, so well done. And I remember just thinking, you know, I could, I'd love to do that. I bet you I could do that. And it just, it stuck. So then Jim Bailey, you see him, him on TV. Anybody else at that point? No, just him. Because, you know, TV wasn't populated with female impersonators mm-hmm. in the late 70s. And the, the common thread, it's, it's always been Jim Bailey. There's been a couple of performers that people brought up that I've interviewed. But the constant has been Jim Bailey. But I always like to reflect because, I mean, look at some of the shows at that time, you mm-hmm. know, that he graced. And I oh, really yeah. do believe... We've gone backwards in that situation. So you don't, there's not a chance where you go and see, you know, someone like him on The Tonight Show, you know, yeah, or, it's true. You, you know, it's it's off far away, low, you know, VH1 or, you know, yeah. or, or Logo or all these stations now. It's not on the main stations like it was back then. I guess because there's only a few back then, but still, you know, there was a time where there was, you know, Charles Pierce and then oh Jim God. Bailey on, Amazing. on on major network shows, and you don't see it as often, I don't believe, or at least on not on those bigger, impactful shows, shows you yes. know, like it was back then. Probably because there's so many now. But uh, so Jim Bailey, yeah, an amazing, amazing person, oh, yeah. way before his time, you know, just amazing, amazing performer. So Judy Garland, you're in your hairdresser's chair. He turns around, you're Judy Garland. At that point, do you want to start to impersonate her, or would he... I was open to it. I, I wouldn't say I handed him a Judy Garland record and said, put me on, but I was open to it. So he took me later to a nightclub in Hialeah, Florida, which is no longer there, called JP's, and uh, they had a show. And I watched the show and got to see the impersonators and stuff like that, and they offered me a job. And I was like, wow. So I joined the cast, and that was the first show I was ever in, doing Judy Garland. And I thought I should add something to it. So I think Cabaret was out with Liza Minnelli, and I added her to the repertoire. And was the, was the Tiny Tina, was that the first drag show you had seen then? Yes. So, okay. yes. so now you hired to be in the show in Florida, and what other performers, can you remember the other performers that were in that cast at the time? Was it more of a gay bar show, or yeah. were they at a resort? Okay. Gay bar show. And there was, the one I remember the most was this older, older guy who did, named Jackie Jackson, and who did Judy Garland. And I remember watching him, and picking up what the, the some of the moves that he did, I sort of kept in my mind, in the, my file cabinet in my brain. I said, okay, I like that. Oh, that looks like something she would do. Or what is he doing? That doesn't look right at all. And I kept those categorized in my brain. So if I ever did more Garland stuff, I could incorporate those moves into my act. And I've sort of kept that all these years. Were you in the twenties when you started to when you got into this drag show? Were there was there what particular movies or performances were you constantly looking at? Judy, her television shows, her television series. 
Um, I remember, I think it was on when I was a kid, because I remember watching a lot of it on TV, and I remember watching, they re-ran, because she might have died. Um, she had, Actually, she had died by then, but I would watch what I could find of it over and over and over again, you know, and just study it and study it and study it. And were the other performers... At this this gay bar, were they helpful at all? Because it seems very competitive even today's market that not many people are very helpful. They were very helpful, actually. Because I think why is there was one who was like a stripper and there was the guy I know who did Judy Garland and they had like four or five other ones who all did different things. But no one really was an impressionist per se. They were all just doing drag. They all had picked a number and were mouthing the number and doing whatever they wanted to do to it to the best of their ability. But I was more interested in the doing an actual impression of the person as they were, not not over the top, not cartoonish, none of that, but an actual as impression as close as I could get it. And that, that's what caught me. And so how long were you at that bar? What was the name? JP. So how long were you at JP's for? Oh, God. A few years, I remember. So long ago. I was like cranking back the, the wheel to get back there. <laughs> You're in this show at JP's. Do you venture out to go to other shows to look at competition or just to educate yourself more about the other drags? Did you meet anyone else? Around Fort Lauderdale I did in Miami and I went to a few different shows and I saw a few different people and became friends with a few of them which I still have. Anyone today that was extremely impressionable on you in your early 20s? Nikki Adams who ended up being Miss Florida 1980 sorry Nikki I should know this by heart 1984 I think it was and she's been a friend my whole life. And where did you meet Nikki at? I don't remember, to be honest. I just remember we've been friends for a long, long time. So after JP's, how you're there for... A few years. A few years, and then do you move up to another bar? Do you start traveling around? What's... To best in my memory, I did JP's, and then I moved to Fort Lauderdale, and I started getting involved in the other shows in the other for, all the other areas of Fort Lauderdale. I don't know if you know this, but I think there are certain enclaves in the country where drag is really popular and the drag that they have in those enclaves is really good i mean like like exceptional and south fortunately knock on wood south florida is one of those communities that's always always had great drag and i feel lucky that i grew up and became involved with drag in a place that had such talent because it helps hone me and educate me as to what I could be and what I could do uh, that was really good instead of something that was mediocre. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Good, mm-hmm. good, good. So when did things start to convince you, because I'm sure you probably had day jobs at the time, were mm-hmm. you pursuing, if you will, a normal career path besides the drag, or was drag your only focus and that's where you were going? No, I had uh, I had a day job as well. Drag was more on the side, which it's been off and on my whole life. And certain points I've made it the focus of my, my job, and at other points it's been secondary, but... Um, yeah, I've worked as, oh my God, what did I do? So you were able to compartmentalize the yes, careers. Yes, so yes. awesome, awesome. I love that. I love that. I think I meet so many performers and I often think like, gosh, if they were able to compartmentalize their careers, they would really be making an amazing living. <laughs> yeah, but with the, with the shows and the traveling and some of the shows and bars run so late, I can't imagine even trying to get up the next day and carrying oh. a, a, a career in the daytime. Um, so... When did, had you seen, when did Lacage come into your site? 
probably 1983 or 84. Um, I had been in a show at the Fountain Blue Hilton in Miami called Jewel Box 77. And Jewel Box was... Does that reflect the year? Yeah. And Jewel Box 77 was a, a cast of impersonators and presented on a huge stage like Anne Margaret and Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra and all these people played this showroom in Miami. And so it was massive where they would have signs and flot come out of the ceiling with, you know, it was amazing. Yeah, real. Fountain Blue was just a legendary, historic Yeah, it was just show place amazing. There. And um, I was offered a job in it doing Garland. So I did Judy there for four or five years. We went on the road, we toured, had an amazing experience. Um, in about 1983-84, I was offered a position by the late Lou Pasioko, who was the owner of Lacage in Los Angeles, that they were opening a show in Atlantic City called at Bally's Park Place. And he would wanted me, he was willing to fly me to Atlantic City to audition for him. Um, and he would know then if he wanted to hire me or not. So they flew me to Atlantic City, and uh, I auditioned. And I remember at the end of it, he said, You know, we're married, you and I. And since we're married, I'm going to tell you like it is. And you are the best Judy Garland I have ever seen. And you and I are married. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> okay. And so I assume at that point you got the job there. Yes, yes. And for, I think most of the followers, most of the listeners will probably know, have already been educated about this. I talk about it almost every podcast. And that's, a, that's some of the common, common ground that we all come from is this franchise and this this show called La Caja Fall or the franchise and Evening in La Cage, all based on the movie, you know, French film La Caja Fall. And it was the epitome of the art form. You know, if you've made it to that show or any of its you know um, branches branches you had really made it in this art form and that was when you said you worked for Lacage or were part of it people knew that you had made it basically that's what everyone was seeking to be a part of that um, Atlantic City so that show was already open at the time when you mm-hmm. joined it they were oh. getting ready to open it and do you remember who was in that cast Gypsy was the MC. and there was a guy named Jimmy Dean Jimmy James who did Marilyn Monroe who was amazing um, Lindsay Lee, uh, Shelley Michaels, who did Shirley MacLaine, um, Jimmy D, who did Diana Ross. Um, a lot of these people are unfortunately no longer with us, and some fortunately still are, like Gypsy. And Jimmy James. And Jimmy James, that's true. doesn't look anything like he did then, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all might get older, change, oh God. Yes, exactly. Gun, please. When, when, so when you're going through this Judy Garland phase, because, you know, for the listeners, you know, if you never heard of Logan before, Logan, you know, is Judy Garland. That is his, we all say, you know, it's, it's pretty common for the one, for drag artists to have one, set character and that's their character that's what they do and in Logan's case he was known for the Judy Garland impersonation that's what he was best known for did you find similarities uh, that you could relate to Logan versus Judy or is it more just you becoming Judy that's changed over the years I'm gonna say in the beginning it was more about 
Logan becoming Judy at Showtime. You know what I mean? You, you in the mirror, you put on the dress, put on the makeup, put on the clothes, yada yada yada. You go on stage, and you do it. But as time has gone on, it's made me question: Is there more to it? Is there is there more behind it than what meets the eye? Um, do I think that I'm Judy Garland? God no. And my husband, I'm sure, would say thank you, God. But the the best I can tell you is. There are moments when I've got to go on stage and I've got the costume and the makeup and that all on, and I'm standing in the wings and I'm trying to put myself into the mindset of her. And I have a picture in my eye of her last film, where she did "I Could Go." The song was the movie was called "I Could Go On Singing," and she's standing in the wings and the orchestra's playing and she's getting herself ramped up to walk out. And there are moments where. I forget myself, if that makes any sense. And it, it has that kind of eerie kind of feeling where the closest I can say is it really feels like I am her for that time because I'm not there as Logan in my mind going, okay, do this, do that, turn this way, lift your head here. That doesn't happen. Um, it's just, it just is what it is. And I've had people since tell me, you know one of them, who said to me, you know, astrology-wise or numero- numerologically, you have the same pattern in your numbers as Garland did. And you have the same, he, he pointed out all the similarities. And I was really surprised in some ways. And in other ways, I wasn't surprised at all. And it's not uncommon for performers. I and mean, Jim Bailey was known for becoming... Yeah. He thought he was Judy Garland yeah. once he was Judy Garland. But he sort of not, took, uh, took it over the edge. Not like in this. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I never had the pleasure of meeting him or understanding him before or talking to him, but uh, I can see where it is a a talent and a and kind of a requirement, you know, to portray. Especially, well, Jim Bailey was a live singer versus someone who lip syncs like Logan, and it's still. And people always say, oh, it's so easy to lip sync. I was thinking, no. No, it's just like, you know, it's just, it's so. For me, the whole, to convince someone that you're actually singing the song is so much more difficult than you just singing. God, yes. You know, and because you've got to add to it the inflections of your, your facial um, emotions to relate to the words that you're singing and... The breathing. And, the, and just everything. Yeah. There's so much more to it, uh, acting, and it's really a talent. And once you've accomplished that, uh, you know, in my experience, you know, once you can accomplish that, you convince the audience that you're actually singing, you really, you know, uh, have arrived. So you join uh, the college in Atlantic City, and how long are you there for? A number of years. I was there for quite a long time. And then they had opened... They were in the process of opening Las Vegas... And they said, do you want to go to Vegas to open it? And I was like, sure. So I went from Atlantic City to Las Vegas, and they opened Lacage and then Las Vegas, and was there for a long time. When you say a long time, five years? Longer than that. Okay. Seven, eight, like a long time. Total with Lacage, I was there 15 years in San Francisco, L.A., and the national tours we did. And then I added Lacage in Beverly Hills after that, and um, yeah, so a long time. Yeah, so the Lacage brand, you know, starts off in Beverly Hills in the early '80s, and then it sprouts off to Atlantic City, uh-huh. and then Vegas, and then Las Vegas, and then they had a a showroom in San Francisco. Uh-huh. I'm not sure of the timeline, but then yep. they had a, some runs in Florida somewhere. Yep. Um, did they make it to Aruba ever, or is that a different? 
I think they they were they going kept to, name the they same were going to go into different? Aruba, but I never made it. They offered me, and I the things I had heard about Aruba, you had to weigh: is it worth going there and being on that little island um. for <laughs> eighty years, or is it not? And I chose not. So I think they, I think. Tommy had referred to it as the Jewel Box Review, which is a whole nother ball of wax. Another history there. Yeah. And so when you get to Vegas, evening at La Cage in Las Vegas, the Riviera Casino, which is no longer standing, but it was at the Riviera yeah. Casino. What year is that? Do you remember? Had you known about Kenny Kerr at the time? Uh, did you meet him there? I had heard about Kenny Kerr, but I had never seen Kenny Kerr. And when we went for the rehearsals and all that, he was playing down the street at a casino called the Silver Slipper, and he had his own show. And I'd always heard, you know, like amazing things about him. So we went to see the show, and I was friggin' gagged when he came out as Streisand because Yentl was in the theaters at the time. And when he came out as Streisand, the whole stage was black, and all of a sudden one spotlight came on, and there he was sitting on the floor dressed as Streisand as Yentl, doing Papa Can You Hear Me? And I have goosebumps the size of quarter. Just thinking about it, it was scary. It was that good. And Kenny Kerr is such a, such a pioneer, really, for us in our generation that, you know, to, yes. have, to be so young, I think his story, as he told me, was always 18 or 19. He was plucked from New Jersey, brought to the Silver Slipper. Back then it was ran by... Wow. Mobsters. Wow. <laughs> you know, so the mob was running Vegas back then. And to think these mobsters were hiring drag queens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Seriously. Just, they were really pretty uh, pretty advanced back then yeah. to, to think that because they knew what sold. And, and Kenny would tell me about these lines around the block to get it's in. Crazy. To, to Silver Slipper, you know. And then that was before the college ever got there that Kenny yeah. was there. And a uh, young boy, you know, people used to say he looked like Streisand even as a boy. So... Um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, he was such an amazing talent, uh, firecracker, but still yeah. very talented on stage. You could not outwit him, outspeak him. He was quick. He was yeah. quick on that mic. Yes. Just like our dear Gypsy. But a whole different yes. fashion, though. Just like yes. a whole different fashion. It's amazing MC. So you see, do you remember who was in Kenny's show at that time? A guy named Little Lil, a comedian, uh, who was very funny. And a friend of mine named Emery Dubois who did Shirley Bassey, like amazing. And Tina Turner, not so amazing. And uh, Diana Ross, pretty good. And a few other people, selected people, they were very good. But Kenny, it was Kenny's show, obviously. So you're in the Kaj. I think Yitzel came out like 83, so it's like 83, 84. I'm assuming more like 84, maybe. Um, the Kaj opens at the Riviera. Who's in that cast? You actually will not be surprised to hear this. A friend of mine, uh, still a very, very dear friend, uh, named Christopher Morley, who did Marilyn Monroe, and he did a very, very good Marilyn Monroe, and he was he was the basic person I remember off the top. There was a guy named John Merritt who did Liza Minnelli and Helen Reddy and a few other people. We did a Showtime special for Milton Berle that was filmed, and I think I still have a copy of it. And that was air, aired or was on videotape, videotape right? Yes, yeah, and aired, too. And aired, too. Yeah. And what, was that immediately after they opened or right when they opened? I can't recall. It wasn't right when they opened. It was a little bit, like, like a year or two, I think, after they opened. And uh, it was a very good experience. 
And so Christopher Morley, was he in, he was in the L.A.-based show. Yes. Was he in Vegas ever? I don't they took him to Vegas for a while, and okay. then he left and went back. Back to L.A. So do we call anyone else in Off the... Off the top of my head, no. I mean, Gypsy I mean, opened it, right? Gypsy opened it. And then... Before Frank Marino. Frank Marino eventually came. Yeah. And I remember that Kenny Kerr was not happy about us opening, and sent <laughs> sent Frank Marino a box delivered on opening night and Frank opened the box and it was a dozen black roses <laughs> and I was like okay <laughs> these these queens aren't playing <laughs> well it's like, it's like you know it's a competition you know it can be healthy <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I mean I'm trying to remember by from my uh, reference looking back um so Frank Marino, doesn't he hail from the same state? He comes, I think, from New York. Um, Via Florida, then? He was in Florida for a while, but I think he actually started his career in doing private parties and bar mitzvahs and all that in New York. Okay. Yeah, New York State. So in, do we have some of our fellow people in the... Is, is Larry Edwards in the show? Larry Edwards eventually came to the show doing Hot, hot Chocolate was his drag name. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and he was remarkable. Like, really, really great. Who, um, so can you recall anyone else that's in it? So they had dancers there. It was a production. It was. But he, he no, Bear Alleman, who was the producer, uh, would not hire male dancers. <laughs> so he figured since the cast is all guys impersonating women, he had all our backup dancers women. Instead of men, um, which big be, not not <laughs> masculine Try to be some, but not necessarily all of them. I don't think it was the best thing I've ever seen with having female dancers, but I understood his point of view. So you're there for Year. several years. years. Yes, years. <laughs> Eventually, you make your way to Los Angeles. So, do you recall at what point you what year that is? Probably early '90s. So that's towards the end of then. The, yeah. The, the, of the the Kaj. Probably early the '90s, fall. and I was there. For a flat, the last few years of it, and finally, right at the end, when they were deciding they were going to close and all that, um, I went with another show that was in Elko, Nevada, which was this tiny, tiny little town in the n- wilds of northern Nevada, um, and we were at a Red Lion Inn casino, okay, how's that, and uh, I was at that show for quite a while, and then I got a phone call out of the blue from Hot Chocolate, who told me, you know, Nobera's looking for you. He wants to hire you if you would come back to Atlantic City. And I said, yes. So I took the job and went back to Atlantic City, and I was there for quite a while. So it was a very good experience. So in Elko, who, what show was that? Who put that show? Oh, God. Jimmy's show? No. No, it was like a some small drag show that they had put together that was they had hired it and rented it to the to the uh, casino. So you're in this drag show there. That's which I've always had that notion that the smaller the town and the more conservative the town, the bigger and the better the show gets. Like I mean the show <laughs> makes the impact and everybody wants to go. Yes, that's true. So was it a popular show people pro- packed packed every friggin' night. Yeah. And who do do we call who was in this show? No one of any substantial well one person, a guy like, who sticks out in my head was named Joey. Oh man, come up with it. He did Charo. He's very well known. You know who I'm talking Skil- about. Skilbert. Joey Skilbred. Yeah. He was by far the most professional guy in the show and uh, great, great, great person. Very and talented. Amazing. 
painter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, amazing! And he, his his hobby. I don't know why was he could take a Barbie doll, little plastic Barbie doll you buy from a store, and turn it into a celebrity recreation that would dr- make your jaw drop. He painted a whole series of mm-hmm. of. Uh, Portraits of celebrities that they're still wow. being tossed around. I mean, I still see them. Wow. Like I have a gentleman That's friend great. of mine had them, and then he sold them to another person. And there was a whole series that he did that they're still being sold, and they're around, one of a kind, an amazing. Yeah, he's very good. Amazing artist. So you end up getting a call from Lou Pasioka. You go back to Atlantic City. I got a call from Nobert Alleman, Nobert. who was the producer, and I went back to Atlantic City and was there for a number of years and I left right before Atlantic City closed. Like right before, like two weeks before or something. So when you return there, who's in the cast now? And what year? Do we have a year? Do you remember? Mm, You and your years, God. Um, Trying to place it. Because La Caja Fall closed in L.A. already. You go to Elko. Right. Mid-90s, I assume, so Atlantic City is still happening, 96, 97. I think it was probably mid-90s I went to back to Atlantic City, and the cast in the show was John Kenna, who did an incredible share. His name was Elgin, and Randy, who, uh, who did Liza Minnelli, and a friend of mine named Carly Davidson, who did Madonna, and the MC, which was a guy named Bobby Bruno, and they hired a couple of straight guys who did Abbott and Costello, who were very, very good. This is in Atlantic City? This is Atlantic City. And Phil Craig, who did Liza Minnelli. And oh, Randy Roberts did Betty Davis. Very, very good. And that was pretty much the show, and it, we knocked them out of the park. We were the only, it, was, and it, it ended up being the longest-running show in the history of Atlantic City. Randy Allen? Allen? Randy Allen. Yes. <laughs> Correction, because we've interviewed Randy Roberts, so there's yeah. Randy yeah, Allen. Randy Allen. Kind of the same, um, same, another just remarkable young person. If you don't know about Randy Allen, there's very limited information on the internet about Randy Allen, but he did an amazing Betty Davis. Yeah. Oh, my God. Scary. Uh, and uh, he also, I believe, did Judy Garland. He did Judy Garland. He did Marilyn Monroe, Monroe. and Liza Minnelli. And he was, uh, you know, he died of AIDS complications when he was, I was just recently researching him, in preparation of all these podcasts of people and learning more about the craft. He died when he was 37, I believe, 36 or 37, which he had accomplished so much. And he did this amazing PS. Betty Davis. Which stood for post-stroke and so clever and so... Uh, Funny. And genius. Yes, yes. Yeah, just because he he wasn't... I mean, he lip-synced, but, but Betty Davis was a live impersonation in the likes of Charles Pierce. Oh, you yes. Know, and, and it was... It was very entertaining and very funny. And very poignant at the yeah, same time. The same, and and yeah. it just was so good. And he was so young, died so young. And just to think if he was around now, what he would have been or could have accomplished. And it's very sad, but extremely talented. And came from uh, a very conservative family, like most people back then. But he has amazing... He has a brother, I believe, is still living, who wrote about him. And that's the only thing you pretty much find and it's part of his obituary uh online it's very I've never seen that I have very to amazing that. Um, and he talks about uh, his brother and um, it's just I wish there was more about but one of his most uh, probably most memorable things besides seeing him live and 
in the Betty Davis show live, Randy Allen is when he impersonated um, uh, Sally Jesse Raphael. Yeah. <laughs> she opened. Yeah. The, she, they opened the show, that talk show, Sally Jesse Raphael, and it was Randy as Sally. Yeah. And then Sally came up playing her. So, so oh, that's amazing. So, what besides? It's a common knowledge to other people that worked with with Elgin too. Was that the stand-up part performer when you came back to Atlantic City? Or? Hands down, yes. He I mean, was when I he, when I I put doing this for forty four years or forty five years, and when I sit back and I think about the people that I've seen in this business who would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up because their impressions were so. On the money, he is in that list of my top five. His wow. share was incredible. And all the pictures of doing research on him, there wasn't what I mean, even his worst picture in Drag a Share was Share. Yes. No doubt it was Share. It could be Share, you know, on the curb outside some car on the ground. It was still Share. I mean, I can't, he cannot, cannot, even his worst picture as Share, you would not believe that was not Share. I he, mean, it he, was. I agree with you completely. He was I- exceptional. And the thing about it is, he really made that difference between when he was at work and going into share mode and at home when you didn't see any kind of share whatsoever. It was just John being John. Um, Really amazing, amazing, amazing talent. So Atlantic City, you're there, it closes, and then what comes next for Logan at the time? Like in the late 90s, right? I, I went back to Vegas, and I was in the Vegas show until 1999 and come 1999 I was working during the day as a makeup artist for the Bellagio Hotel for Steve Wynn and I was doing all their clients and doing people who were staying at the hotel and people who were visiting and guests and all this all these people and at night I was in Lacage down the street so I was really burning the candle at both ends and I thought you know I've, I've achieved everything I ever wanted to achieve in this business. You know, I've gotten, I've done TV, I've done movies, I've made, I've exceptional, worked exceptional places with amazing people. And I think, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm, I'm done. So I told Nobert that I was leaving. And the same time that I told Nobert I was leaving, a guy named Chad Michaels, who was in the show with me, who also did an incredible share, and Celine Dion, so told Nobert he was leaving too. And I thought Nobert was going to throw himself off the roof of the Riviera. And um, I remember them. It, like it was yesterday in my last performance, and I sold every bit of drag that I had, except for a brooch, which a friend of mine in Florida had given me many years before who died. And I sold everything. And I went full tilt into working my day job and making a really good career out of it. And I came here five years ago, six years ago, and I met you at a birthday party for Gypsy. And we had not seen each other, you and I. You, for came, a, you came to Prom Springs, yeah, where we both a, currently live. Yeah. For a long, long time. And it was so good seeing Gypsy. And uh, I met some other people in your show who showed me pictures of them as certain characters, like Kevin, Kevin Wiley, and I was like, holy crap, you look, that's amazing. And then I found out you had the longest history in in Lake Tahoe, and I had heard there was a show in Lake Tahoe, but I didn't hear enough about it that made me want to go and investigate it. You know what I mean? I just heard, you know how you hear it through the grapevine, that there was a show happening in, in uh, Tahoe. 
And you said to me, you know, we're opening a show, and I'd really like it if you would come back to work for me. And I was like, I don't have anything. And you're like, well, you could. Just let me know. And five years later, here we are. And Kevin Wiley at the time was working with me. He was the one who kind of threw together some outfits and wigs and then got you, got you going. So, so and, talented. Uh, and, uh, and then that was, yeah, history. That was 2000, December 2014. Uh, we opened at Oscars in Palm Springs, and then, you know, cut to today. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Yes. It's just, uh, yeah, that's a whole other story. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, we uh, went on our regular show schedule Friday and Saturdays. You know, Logan performs in Oscars Cabaret as Liza Minnelli and Ju- Judy Garland most of the time, uh, and, uh, and in the finale. And that's every Friday and Saturday. But if you do look it up, check the schedule. You mentioned some TV shows and stuff. Do anything notable that we would... I'm assuming that probably might have stemmed from L.A. when you yeah, were in L.A. when I was in L.A. Anything that we would might remember today? Oh, the Lisa Gibbons show. Remember Lisa yeah. Gibbons? We were on that. And People would walk into La Caja Fall, which was main. The, the main show for, for the franchise, even at La Cage in Beverly Hills, and they would be casting directors. or so every Any given night, there'd be a celebrity, if not one, several in the audience, and they'd walk in, and they'd write parts for them in movies and TV That's shows, crazy. or they'd, they'd be talk show hosts and say, we want you all on the show, you know? So it was just, this is before the internet. This is before we, yeah. this is when we used phones and wrote letters. <laughs> and mail pack- Ancient history. And mail packages. <laughs> so it was kind of slower that time, but it, but they mean they meant business. It's when you met people and did, you know, dealings in person, you know, and carried your videotape. To show them who you were. Yeah, you know, true. Now you just give them a flash drive or tell them to go to you know loganwalker.com. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, so that's what kind of spawned a lot of stuff. A lot of TV shows and movies spawned out of that because people would come and see an evening in the Kaj in Beverly Hills and cast these people on the shows. It was so, really good. What is your fondest memory of performing? Is it performing for celebrities like? Who's the biggest celebrity that made an impression on you that you met, might have met in these years of performing? Right top of my head, Liza Minnelli is the first one who sticks in my head. Um, she was funny and, and gregarious and outgoing as you would expect her to be. But I also think she, by the time I had met her, she had seen so many people do impressions of her or had been told about people that looked just like her, quote-unquote, that I think she was a little jaded by it. Um, and I don't think that she necessarily loved the idea. Some people, like Cher, like Reba McIntyre, have hired impersonators to be in their show, uh, Gloria Estevan, who do impressions of them, and they come out and the audience believes that they're looking at Cher or Reba McIntyre, and then the real star walks out. Um, and they do sometimes they do a number together, sometimes they don't. So... That had happened a lot by then, and I think Liza was a little mm, flattered, but do you know what I mean? Had she, had you met her, this is after performance, or just you met her and you told her you'd impersonate? After one of her performances in Miami, I think it was. So you saw her perform, and then you told, you got to meet her and told her yeah. what you did. And she was very nice. I mean, don't get me wrong, she wasn't a bitch or rude or anything. But I think I think she had had her fill of Liza Minnelli impersonators <laughs> by that time in her life. And what is the biggest impact or moment 
memorable moment that you that did you I remember had, that you've had in drag performing? That's always so fresh in your head. All I remember. We that night. we did uh, a few national tours with Lacage, and we played some huge, huge theaters, and we were playing in Niagara Falls, New York at this enormous theater. It sat like 4,000 people, and we had about 4,000 people there. It was crazy. And I remember that I did Judy Garland, and I remember at the end of it, they stood up. And as far as I could see, it looked like there were about 4,000 people standing and applauding. And I bowed, and... I went to walk off stage, and Gypsy, who was the MC, came out and pushed me back to the center of the stage. And I had tears coming out of my eye. It was amazing. It's that moment that we've all had that you realize that as goofy as this might seem to people, or as goofy as you might, you know, the other side of your brain tells you, you know, the left side that's goofy, you know, that you've really accomplished and you've really nailed it and you've reached that pinnacle that you're the best and you've made an impact on people because a lot of the shows that we've been involved in our lives cater to the general public not to the gay right the gay you know realm they they expect drag queens (laughs) we're old hat (laughs) you know it's it's like that's just but you don't go to a high-end corporate event and expect a bunch of drag queens to come out and entertain them and when they do and when you floor them like that and they stand on their feet it's just that moment that that pinnacle moment of your career where you realize you've you've arrived and you've all the hard work and the jokes you'd had to endure and the family issues everything that you might have endured all of it comes full circle and you know that you're important you know and you know i share that same moment when uh you know, I wanted to mark, you know, when I've done shows, and I know you can relate to this, having the mark that you're known for. And, you know, all my life I always just copy people. How can I make it better? But taking and being inspired by someone like like the finale and, you know, eating a cage and, and the, that, those franchises and making it my own and putting more than one person in it, that was my signature. And being in New Mexico and doing a similar situation with, you know, thousands of people in a theater... And when all the guys took got stripped to their underwear and the people just stood to their feet cheering and applauding, I knew at that point I had reached and created something that was impactful for just yes. the general audience that is not gay. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. Because we want to break away. You know, gay people will always clap and throw us dollars and tell us how great as, uh, we are. But we want the acceptance of the people that are outside that gay realm yes. that don't see us every day, that we are somebody and we have accomplished something and that's uh if any of you listening have ever seen the number that dan is talking about it's i am what i am and it's three actors who are doing different segments of the song in three different voices and and then there's a change and it turns into men and everyone changes out of makeup and into men's clothes and the number ends as guys the number is so impactful and so powerful when it's done to perfection. And I've heard Dan say it a hundred times, you know, you got to get it right, you got to do it different, let's do it again, let's do it again, let's do it again, da-da-da. And 
when we did it and we had it down so smooth and we did it, the audience flips out. Mm-hmm. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, so we share that. And it's, you know, I didn't, you still meet people today that see this art form. You know, first of all, this art form has been around for a very long time. <laughs> very long, you know, just, you know, since, since man. It's always been there. I mean, it's always, men getting in drag has been there. You know, we didn't create any of that. But still having the impact and, and an impression, making that impression on the world. You know, like so many young, full, young performers do today. Another point of doing this podcast is like there's people that paved this way or this art form in our generation, you know, and that were here much longer. And when I think about the new ones, my coach and when I hire new performers and, and direct them and we talk about performers like, oh, I only know, you know, Ru- RuPaul. the Ru- RuPaul girls, which are great, but there's so much more history way <laughs> before RuPaul came to be. And that's what this podcast, you know, focuses on, the people that kind of paved the way for all those performers, you know, to be here. And they've made a huge impact. Uh, of course they have. Um, but prior to them, there's been many people that have made just as big of an impact. And, uh, God, yeah. And, uh, and Logan, that's why Logan's here. Logan's one of them. And, and, and uh, I appreciate you coming here. I, I'm more flattered than I can tell you, and I thank you very much. And if you guys ever get a chance to see Logan, you can find him on Facebook, social media. I know you're on Facebook. Do you know your Facebook page? I do. Page? I, have a, I have a one-man show I travel with a lot um, called Showstoppers. So if, on Facebook is Logan Walker's Showstoppers. And you can reach out and see his schedule. And, and on our regular schedule here at Oscars, he is always pretty much always in the show every Friday and Saturday night um, we when uh, so check the schedule if you're ever in Palm Springs Oscars PalmSprings.com and I appreciate your time Logan and look forward to seeing you back on stage yay me too <laughs> thank you very much thank you And remember, you all, my restaurant and entertainment venue, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs, where entertainment is on hold currently per COVID restrictions. But we are serving some great food most weekends, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For a lovely meal and a lovely atmosphere, check out my restaurant, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs. We'll see you all there. Thank you for listening to Icon's Incredible Creation on Stage podcast hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.